Welcome to the LGBTQ plus rights pride and the law, a podcast. My name is Maria Hawk. I am the founder and creator of this podcast. This is a project under the LGBTQ plus slash HIV Essex Law Clinic designed as a podcast. The research is aimed at sharing the stories of LGBTQ plus members by highlighting discriminative policies and legal practices that resulted in the violation of their fundamental rights. The Essex Law Clinic will gather useful information to educate the public about existing resources in order to face the kind of legal challenges discussed in this podcast. I would like to introduce to you our speakers for today. Blandon Mario is our lead student interviewer. Joining as our participant is Dr. Haim Abraham. Dr. Abraham is a lecturer at the School of Law at the University of Essex. He holds a Doctor of Juridical Science degree from the University of Toronto, a Master of Law degree from the University of Cambridge, and a Bachelor of Law degree combined with the Interdisciplinary Honors Program in the Humanities from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he was on the editorial board of the Israel Law Review. We sincerely hope you enjoy this conversation. I will see you shortly again after the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the LGBTQ Plus and the Law podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Abraham, and he's going to tell us about the law on surrogacy uh, for a same-sex couple in Israel. First, Dr. Abraham, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. Thank you very much for having me here today. So a little bit about myself. I am a lecturer at the University of Essex School of Law. My main research and teaching are in private law, so tort law, contract law, but I also have a focus on some elements of public law, international law, family law, and LGBTQ rights. I started teaching at Essex about a year ago, 2020. Before that, I did my doctoral thesis at the University of Toronto School of Law. I did my master's at Cambridge and my LLB at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Well, <laughs> the first topic we wanted to talk about today and to discuss with you is your activities regarding surrogacy in Israel. Could you tell us about the current situation, the position of the government, and the situation for LGBTQ plus people in the community in Israel. Yeah, gladly. So the situation has evolved over the span of almost 30 years or so. So starting in the mid 80s, Israel started regulating and allowing for certain IVF treatments to go ahead that were prohibited until that point in time. So sperm donation, egg donation. And still there have been about 30 couples or so that have approached the Knesset, that is the Israel's parliament, and identified that they have a particular issue that requires not just an egg donation or sperm donation, but actually it requires surrogacy, which was a relatively new practice at the time. There was a committee that was appointed, and that committee, like almost every committee in Israel, was composed of various people from various ends of the political and religious spectrums. But eventually, at the end of the day, what was decided is that they're going to recommend that surrogacy is going to be allowed for heterosexual couples. Because there were uh, religious members on that committee, and because of the way in which the coalition government was formed. Uh, there have been all sorts of particular items that were relevant and emphasized by the religious members of the Knesset, and they eventually found their way into the actual legislation. So 
For example, it's not just that it is a heterosexual couple, it doesn't necessarily have to be a married couple, but a heterosexual couple that is eligible for surrogacy, but also the surrogate mother has to be unmarried. So she can be single, she could be a widow, she could be divorced, but she cannot be married because if she is married, then according to Jewish law, the husband is going to be the father of that child. So the surrogate has to be unattached in a way. The surrogate has to be a member of the same religion as the intended parents because they didn't want to have any kind of issues with class religion and they didn't want to deal with that. Uh, so you have all sorts of limitations that operate on that scale. So you have the element or legislative part that defines who can be a surrogate and who can actually approach the entire process of surrogacy. But in addition, you have a statutory committee that sits in the Ministry of Health and is composed of physicians, uh, psychiatrists, social workers, and uh, members of the religious uh, community. And they have to approve or reject an application by intended parents and surrogate mothers to undergo this process. So individuals can enter into these agreements. These could be commercial agreements. There, there can be compensation. There is no cap on compensation in that regard. So it's not like in Canada, for example, where a surrogacy, it's only altruistic and you can't pay surrogates. Uh, you can only reimburse them for certain expenses they incur. So in Israel, you can actually pay them for being surrogates. But the contract cannot be acted on and no doctor is going to start the surrogacy process until you go to that committee and the committee approves your application. And they look at all the various factors. And of course, they look at uh, what the law is actually saying and decide according to that. And because of the way the law is framed, you can only undergo surrogacy if you are in a heterosexual relationship as the intended parents. So single individuals, male, female, and same-sex couples cannot actually undergo surrogacy. There are other complications that go to the eligibility for egg donations in Israel, which is also highly regulated and is only available for women who require that. It's not something that men can actually get an egg donation, but I'm happy to put that aside for the minute and go back to it. So, we have this legal situation where only heterosexual couples can actually undergo surrogacy. And in the mid-90s, around 1996, there was a single woman and she needed surrogacy arrangements to actually have a child of her own. She was able to get sperm donation. She could, was able to use her own eggs. But due to a hysterectomy, she needed a surrogate. And of course, she was rejected because she's a single individual and she brought a case to the uh, Supreme Court of Israel, that's the highest court, and the court actually decided that the law in the way it was currently framed is discriminatory. However, despite that, despite that fact that they found that the law was discriminatory, they held that the discrimination was nevertheless proportionate for the time being. So usually when we talk about uh, proportionality, uh, uh, we know that there are certain tests that are involved. There are three tests, right? You need to have a rational connection between the legislation and its goal. You need to have injury or loss uh, or limitation or restriction of the right should be as minimal as possible. And also you have 
uh, proportionality in its narrow sense. So you're looking at cost versus benefit of having that particular piece of legislation. And what the court held was that the first two proportionality tests were met, but also the third one is particularly because of the fact that surrogacy was something new. It wasn't entirely clear for them how would opening up surrogacy to a broader audience so to speak, or to a broader market would affect the family structure, the children who are born through surrogacy agreements, and so on and so forth. And they wanted the legislator to look that over and resolve the issue. So that proceeding was rejected. But it was a really important case because it actually stated that the law is discriminatory. So that was a really important case. And since that 1996 case, there have been several other parliamentary committees that have looked over surrogacy treatments, and they made all sorts of different recommendations over the years. All of them eventually failed for uh, political reasons, particularly because they weren't able to enlist the needed majority due to pushback from religious members of the Knesset. So you had one committee that actually said that, yes, we should open up surrogacy, but only to include single women as well. As well. We don't want to include uh, same-sex couples. We don't want to include single men just to solve that particular problem that the court said was problematic. Different committee started thinking about things and said, actually, we should be able to open up surrogacy for all single individuals, but if it is men then surrogacy should be altruistic, whereas for everyone else, it could be commercial. There are also all sorts of discussions about regulating international surrogacy, not just surrogacy that happens within Israel, uh, which is something that I'll be happy to chat about in a bit. But at the end of the day, all of these committees, all of their recommendations, all of the bills that were tabled after their suggestions and recommendations were put forward, none of them actually managed to become law in a way. Now, fast forward a little bit to the year uh, 2010, you have first petition to the Supreme Court by same-sex couple. These were two men. They wanted the court to declare that not only is the law discriminatory, but they should actually read in or read out various elements of the legislation in order to enable and allow same-sex couples to have access to surrogacy in Israel. And there they indicated that the fact that surrogacy is limited in Israel only to heterosexual couples is clearly discriminatory. That much has been already established in previous uh, court rulings. But what actually happens is that these couples have to go abroad. Um, they do that at a very large personal cost. This could reach uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Of course, it is very difficult for them because they are detached from their family support as well. It's also quite difficult in the procedural sense. They have to undergo the various legal procedures to get their parental rights in order in that foreign jurisdiction they're in. And then to have that recognized in Israel again, which was something that wasn't quite clearly regulated and wasn't very transparent to people who were trying to do that. Um, there have been a lot of advances in that particular field as well. And uh, the court there managed to convince the couple that petitioned to 
withdraw their petition in exchange for the government actually initiating one of those parliamentary committees and looking things over and mulling over and thinking about it and trying to see if they can resolve things. They weren't able to do that and nothing actually advanced. The petition was uh, resubmitted again in 2017 and eventually just last year in 2020, the Supreme Court finally held that the law is discriminatory, that this discrimination is disproportionate, it doesn't uh, meet any of the proportionality tests, and ordered the government to amend the law within the year. And if they are unable to do so, then they will look into providing the relevant remedy, either reading into current law that heterosexual couple could also be single individuals or same-sex couples, or uh, striking out that eligibility criteria altogether. So these are things that are still waiting to happen. I think that the government weren't able to reach anything. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of the current legal situation, but there hasn't been a stable government for a while in Israel. They're currently in the process of another re-election campaign. So uh, it's quite clear that there's not going to be a proper political solution through the government. And the couple petitioned to the court to get them to issue an effective remedy. So we might see within the next few months something quite interesting happening on that particular front. So uh, this was, I think, a both short and long way of trying and answering what is the situation in Israel currently. That was still very interesting and very well said. I wanted to ask you, how did you know so much about this? Like, did you and your partner thought about... Um, doing it or like wanted to do it and then realized there was so much flow in the law and what led you to do all this research? So this is actually quite interesting because what led me to this research was a first year seminar that I took at the Hebrew University that everyone had to take and it was a research seminar. So every student in their first year has to write some kind of research paper on a topic of their choosing. Uh, and there were four different topics uh, that we could choose from. And then from there, you can take it whichever way you want to. And my topic was about access to justice. And I started looking into various things, what the law currently has to offer that might be interesting to look into and say something about in terms of access to justice. And I came across this committee and the fact that that committee is rejecting people who are not straight couples uh, without even considering their their application. So this was just the first year that I started law school. And this was in, in the headlines because the same-sex couple uh, petitioned to the Supreme Court at the time. So I was like, ah, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to look into that particular issue. And I took that paper that I wrote in that first year and amended it and did more research and uh, filled up that particular line of argument over the span of quite a long time and uh, so many years. And eventually it turned out it was submitted to publication and was accepted and was published at one of the Hebrew University uh, journals, the Journal on Legislation. But before I actually did that, I organized a conference. This was in my last year of of DLOB there. And I co-organized a conference with one of the professors at the Hebrew University, with Professor uh, Alon Harel, who was a very strong supporter of LGBTQ rights. He was one of the first people. I think he actually established the first LGBT student group on campus at the Hebrew University when being gay was still a criminal offense. So he was a really strong supporter of the idea and 
we did a two-day conference on surrogacy in Israel. We had members of the Knesset come and speak, and we had uh, lawyers that are advocating for intended parents. We had a surrogate come and play. We had academics. We had all sorts of people from various ministries, so legal representatives from the Ministry of Health and from the state attorney office who often argue against the same-sex couples. We had people from the social services. And it was quite interesting. What was interesting there was not just the panels that were interesting of themselves, but to see how through the informal conversations that were happening between people who are attending or participating, you can actually see how, okay, we can get a lot of things. We can do, we can progress significantly through this scenario, but informally. So you don't just have to go to committees to present various data and various stances. You don't just have to petition to a court. These are all great and this could all push you forward, but you can also do something through academia that will create the environment that will resolve a lot of tensions because you have people talking in a different setting that they're not used to. Maybe their guards are down. Maybe they're more open to hear things. Maybe if they're just doing something over lunch, they're happier because they have something nice that they're eating. So um, they're in a more friendly mood. So it was quite interesting to, to see how things can happen in that setting. And through that, I gained a lot of information about everything that was happening. There is an incredible event. I wish I could have seen that. It is on YouTube. So if you oh. want to learn Hebrew, you can actually still watch it now. Yeah, I don't know any Hebrew, but I guess if there are some subtitles or anything, I could always work that out. You told us about the paper you published, and also you told us before the interview that you were involved in a hearing in the Knesset. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, like the hearing? Yeah, so I was involved in a hearing in the public petitions committee of the Knesset, and they organize these hearings on various issues that are brought to them by the general public. They decide what is a relevant topic that they want to discuss, and then they bring uh, witnesses uh, to give testimony and relevant people from the different ministries and, and, and so on. And that was an interesting experience. I actually, when I was doing my LLB, I co-founded an LGBTQ plus rights group in the School of Law, and we saw that the public petition committee was actually organizing a hearing on that and they asked for evidence and I organized our position paper that we submitted to that committee and we submitted it also to the minister of health that was doing another hearing trying and think about the law and how it could be and I participated in both of these hearings and they were quite interesting because you had some people who are repeat players, some people who are not necessarily repeat players, but actually are new and the way in which the committee actually works. So the committee is not open to the public per se, but it is televised. So you can actually see it on TV. There is a particular channel that broadcasts everything all the time and you can see everything. on So it's like Big Brother for politics. Uh, so much more boring. But on that particular day, that wasn't actually an interesting thing because all of the relevant people assembled and everybody in the committee uh, were in except for one particular person. He was a member of one of the religious parties and he is a member of that committee. He wasn't there and he was late. And then all of a sudden he stormed in. He gave like a really stern speech about how this should never happen. Something else, uh, I, I don't recall the particular wording. I just remember how uh, enthusiastic he was about it for the cameras. And then 
he left dramatically and with him the cameras also left so i just have that kind of memory of that committee being somewhat professional, but at the same time, also somewhat a theater show. So you go to that committee and you have intended parents who are unable to undergo surrogacy and they come there to try and argue their case and get the legislator to amend this huge injustice. And at the same time, it's being used as a platform for narrow political gain. But it was quite interesting to be there and to see how various individuals who either hold a particular office or are just interested and involved members, grassroots initiatives, NGOs and things like that, interact and argue. But eventually, at the end of the day, that committee wasn't able to do much. It gave its recommendation. It said there is discrimination here. It should be resolved. But nothing happened through that committee. The ministerial committee was somewhat more promising. It was a lot smaller. There were a few of the relevant office holder. The uh, legal advisor to the ministry was there. The head of the committee that you apply to for approving your service agreement was there. There were a few strong feminist advocates that published some very stern reports on surrogacy, uh, trying to push for a ban. And then uh, a few of the LGBT uh, rights groups that were trying to push for an expansion. And that was a very interesting discussion. So the forum was smaller. The minister was actually presiding over everything. And she was inspiring, I have to say. I've never seen anyone manage people's discussion in a way that was so effective and so good. Especially if you try and get people in Israel to discuss, there is no discussion culture it's like it's it's everybody's yelling everybody's arguing there is no waiting in line it's just this wonderful mess and she was able to dictate order in a situation and scenario that usually has not though it was quite impressive unfortunately she retired from political life which i think is a terrible loss because she was fantastic but she was open to hearing all the various positions and think things through And when I was there, one of the things that I was really trying to push, because I felt like there was this risk of her being persuaded by some feminist groups that perhaps we should abolish surrogacy altogether, which is something that I think would alleviate the discriminatory elements of the current law, but would leave a lot of people without the redress that they actually wanted. So I was trying to say, well, listen, we have this law. This is this is not time to go back. We have everything that the courts have been saying over the years, how limitation of uh, right to family life and uh, medical treatment in this context is something that would require a, a very significant justification on part of the government. We're no longer there. Instead, what we need to figure out is how we move forward to fixing the problems that the current law uh, presents, the discrimination. And if we want to think about ways that we are going to protect surrogate mothers, that there are ways to do that without leaving behind or uh, perpetuating some kind of uh, discrimination against men or against same-sex couples or against single individuals, which was very much the tone that existed at the time. So it was quite interesting to take part in those activities. We uh, were able to comment on various drafts of the bills that were being pushed forward not necessarily agreeing with all of them, particularly with everything relating to how international surrogacy was thought about in terms of regulation. It was something that was very 
restrictive in a way that's fairly hard to justify. It required a lot of things that don't necessarily add up, or at least they they don't necessarily make a lot of sense. So uh, there was a lot of pushback there. But again, eventually, at the end of the day, there was a new bill. It was much better. It could have solved some of the issues, not necessarily the discrimination issue, because it didn't allow same-sex couples to undergo surrogacy, but instead it allowed single men and single women to undergo surrogacy. And if they have a partner, then there would be a way of recognizing the partner, but not as part of the surrogacy agreement. So protection was not great. Anyways, we had our pushback. There was this bill that was supposed to be somewhat better, or at least a progress, but that never matured into anything because right as it was tabled, there were elections, a new government formed, there were religious members of that, and that bill was uh, buried. So we're still in that particular position. Still very interesting to take part in the activities there. It sounds really interesting. The thing that struck me the most is that feminists wanted to go backward, and LGBTQ it was usually see like intersectionality between the, the fights, and here they were to shoot fight together as, you know, oppressed minorities. I wanted to move on to uh, your personal experience within the community, and you told us that you had problem for the registration of your marriage at the um, Israeli consulate uh, in Toronto. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it ended and what do you intend to do next? Sure thing. So uh, again, for general background in terms of legal stuff, just so people are aware. So in Israel, you can only get married according to your own religious group that you're affiliated with. There are particular religious groups that are recognized. So I think it's about eight different types of or streams of Christianity, Orthodox, Judaism, Islam, but then there are a lot of different religions that are not recognized. So Buddhism, uh, all sorts of different streams of Christianity, uh, they're not recognized. They don't have a way to get married in Israel, of course. Uh, Same-sex couples don't have a way of getting married in Israel either. Funny enough, uh, don't have any way of getting divorced either. So uh, you are either choosing to be a cohabitant couple, uh, which is recognized. It gets most of the same rights, but not necessarily all. It works slightly differently. But if you want to get married, much like surrogacy, you have to go somewhere abroad that recognizes and, and allows you to get married. So my partner and uh, myself, we decided to get married. And at the time I did my master's in Cambridge, he started his SJD in uh, Toronto. And we said, okay, I think the best thing to do, let's get married uh, in Toronto. So we uh, booked a date, we went through all of the various boring details. We got married at City Hall, which was fabulous. As we were leaving, there was actually a couple of Muslim women uh, in hijabs, and they asked us if we just got married. Um, and we said yes, and they started celebrating with us. And it was this kind of wonderful, surreal experience, considering uh, that in Israel, everything is in conflict. And I don't think that any actually religious person of whatever religion would actually celebrate with us. So it was quite wonderful to be in Toronto and have that wedding. And then we said, okay, uh, we got married. The next thing to do, we need to get our marriage registered in Israel because you can do that. You can't get married in Israel, but if you are married abroad, then you can get recognized. And again, that's, that was like a whole big struggle through the Supreme Court was made possible both for heterosexual couples and same-sex couples. So these were two different kind of petitions that, ha that happened. But eventually, this is something that's well-established for many, many, many years. Um, this is something that shouldn't create any kind of difficulty. So 
We got all the relevant documents that we saw that we need. We got to the consulate and eventually we got to that official that sits behind the glass screen. And we tell him that we're there to register. Uh, and he said, oh, we don't do that here anymore. If you want to uh, register, you have to go to Israel and register there physically in Jerusalem. Now, that is something that, I mean, when I heard it, I was both pissed and shocked. I was quite shocked by the fact that was something that was still happening. I was quite shocked by the fact that it's happening to me. And I wasn't quite clear that I understood him correctly because like, okay, I'm a lawyer. My partner is a lawyer. And this person is now saying this thing that's completely against any kind of relevant law in Israel and against Supreme Court rulings and against everything. So for like several times, like, are you sure? What are you saying exactly? So let me just be, let me just be absolutely sure that I understand you correctly. You're saying that I can't register here because we're a same sex couple. But if a straight couple came in, they can register. I said, yes. It's like, okay, but I have to go physically to Israel to register in a particular branch in Jerusalem. That's the only remedy. He said, yes. I'm like, so I was clearly very, very annoyed, which is something that I can't hide quite well. My partner was very much aware of that and also aware of the fact that there are security people staring at us through the one-way mirror. So after making 100% sure that that was a thing that was happening and being completely outraged by that, my partner strongly suggested that we would leave before things will escalate. And we left and I, I was very upset. He was very upset. And we took a few minutes to understand what was going on. And then we started reaching out to people. So fortunately enough, we both know relevant people in various places from our, our studies. So we reached out to those people. And of course, we had an angry uh, post uh, on Facebook. So that never hurts. And, and, and we got traction there. But all sorts of people starting to uh, look into that particular situation, what actually happened there, because clearly that was it wasn't a new protocol that the Ministry of Interior initiated or a new protocol that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs initiated. It just was this particular official in that particular place that decided that they are going to try their best to discriminate against people and see what happens. That was really upsetting and annoying. And all of these various people that started all of these conversations and were doing their magic kind of behind the scenes and it made its way up to the CEO of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Interior. And eventually we were told, just go back and reapply and it will be fixed and everything will be fine. And we got back to the consulate again. And that experience was quite different and quite funny because when you go to the consulate, you have to wait by a particular uh, location and somebody appears, asks you all sorts of questions and then you wait a bit more and then you're summoned and you go up and you go through various mechanisms of security until you actually reach the official that you need. And the second time around, they were ready for us. So everything happened quite quickly and the security was a lot faster and more minimal. And all they wanted us to do is to pay the fee and leave, basically. So we weren't, the official that we saw initially was there. We were not taken to him. We were taken to a different one. She knew already exactly who we were and what we were there to do. She took all the files and said, okay, just pay. I'm like, uh, sure, everything's okay. Said, yeah, everything's fine. Just pay and leave. Yeah, and just pay. Yeah, everything's okay. So it was quite a different experience. 
But it was such a strange incident that on the one hand, I'm very happy that we had the tools and the knowledge to deal with it and resolve it in a quick manner. But at the same time, it was still quite shocking, especially when you're in Toronto and Toronto is so great. Uh, basically, if you're a same-sex couple, there is nothing there that is relevant. So if you go to any kind of public official, they don't care that you're a same-sex couple, which is something that we're not used to from Israel. So every time you say, even if you go to a car, we went to a car rental agency once, and they asked us about our relationship because we wanted to both be driving. We said, well, we're a couple, and they were quite shocked about it and didn't know what to do with it. So I remember the first time I was going to a Ministry of Interior Service, it's called Service Ontario. And the first time I was there, I was about to talk with them uh, and say that I'm married to another man. I was ready to fight and nobody cared. And that was so upsetting. It was like, I was geared up. I was geared up to confront someone and nobody cared. So it was quite strange to be in Toronto where nobody cares if you're in a same-sex relationship and be confronted with that type of discrimination. But Luckily, uh, it was resolved. We are registered and everybody's happy now. That is a great story, Sarah. I Very, very entertaining and very interesting also to see all these struggles you faced just for your marriage. The most procedural, uh, bureaucratic, boring element. There was so much things going on behind it. Yeah, I completely understand. How did you ask you your general feeling uh, within the LGBTQ community did, during your, your studies or I don't know when you came out, if you came out to anyone, uh, did you face any discrimination or any harassment during your life regarding your experience? Yeah, I think that I was relatively lucky in that sense. I don't think that I've ever experienced any kind of direct discrimination. I was able to find uh, a clerkship. Uh, I was always able to find jobs. I was always able to do the things uh, that I want to do academically. That was never a clear hindrance on that sense. But I mean, there are always these instances of uh, microaggressions, you know, that you have the colleague in work that asks about the pride parade and, well, why do people have to be naked on pride parade? Uh, why do you have to have a pride parade anyways? You can celebrate at your own homes and things like that. So, you know, you have all of these things where you have these kind of micro hostilities and microaggressions and then have to undergo through the process of explaining things to people, which is the burden coming out in a way is that kind of similar burden you have to be oh and, and you have to explain things to people and um, it's not one of those things that I think straight people face as much everything is assumed in heterosexual relationships and not assumed for LGBTQ people so you have those uh, experiences I think that there are a lot of things about explaining to people different mindsets and, and sensitivities and things that could be quite simple. One of my examples, so I think that it was in my tort lecture this year, and I do my best to try and have different pronouns when I give examples. So there would be a he, there would be a she, there would be a they. And I remember that one of the students actually asked me if the, this was intentional, right? Am I, am I talking particularly about that gender? So the law is only relevant to that gender in that sense. And it kind of struck me that this is a very important conversation to have to clarify that this is the situation and this is the reality that we're in and we need to be attentive to it. So I don't know if that really answers your questions in full, but I hope it does at least to a certain degree. 
It does, it does. I, I do agree with what you said and having to explain like very basic things, like everything's assumed. I wanted to finish the interview with uh, two questions. First, if there was one thing you could say to someone in a similar situation as yours, what would it be? And secondly, is there a show, a film, an artist, an activist, anyone that inspires you in, in a way that's related to the LGBTQ community that you would like to share with us? So one thing that I would say is, and, and this is like the biggest cliche, right? Just be yourselves. Uh, the, the point is, I think that it's really important not to hide and not to try and be a chameleon that just blends in and adapts to whatever scenario there is and how you think you should be. I think you should be you. It's important not just for you. You don't want to be in a, in a situation and in a setting that doesn't accept you. But it's also important for other people because you never know who's watching. You never know who might say, ah, okay, I see myself through that person in that position. So it's really important to be clear, uh, transparent, to be you, not just for you, but for uh, other members of the community, whether you know them or not. So I would say that. Someone who inspires me, I think that's a bit more difficult to actually say. And I think that perhaps I will again do the very cliche thing. But I think that despite all of the criticism that uh, we might have against him, but RuPaul, RuPaul is someone who managed to take the LGBT community a big way forward in recent years there have been so many people before but because we're talking particularly about artists i think it's really good to emphasize this contribution this recent contribution like drag was so much something that was at the very outskirts of uh legitimacy in our society and now it's it's mainstream so we can talk for ages just about that Uh, but I think that's something that's really important, brings into conversation various uh, uh, issues on gender and gender nonconformity and about the community more generally. So I really appreciate that particular bit. It's true. I do like as well the fact that he brought it to the public, that, like to everyone, to everyone that has an, um, an access to, I think it's on Netflix. But it's it's really important, those kinds of shows that, you know put highlight on on the community and like try to represent them as largely as it can and that's really important i also um, think that it does something for the community more generally because you know for straight people they have their soccer or whatever sports that they're talking about and for us the lgbtq community this is something that brings us together you don't have anything to talk about you can always talk about the latest season of whichever drag race <laughs> that you're actually watching so um, that did something to the community in that sense as well Definitely. Yeah. To finish, I would like just to conclude with a few LGBTQ plus organization in Israel. So first we have Tehila. We have the Aguda, which is the Association for LGBTQ Equality in Israel. We have Iggy, the Proud Youth Organization, which is Israel's national LGBTQ youth organization. And finally, the Batco, the only NGO for LGBTQ women in Israel. So that was the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Abraham, for talking to us. That was really interesting, really enlightening. And thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Abraham's incredible knowledge regarding the surrogacy law in Israel. We also hope that his personal experiences as a member of the LGBTQ plus community 
offered anyone listening encouragement and support for anyone experiencing similar issues. Below this podcast, you will find information about the legal resources discussed in the podcast. There will be additional information offered in detail of how to face the legal challenges described in the interview. For further help or inquiries, please contact the Essex Law Clinic where you can access student aid for free legal advice. Should you have any questions directly related to the podcast, perhaps you're interested in becoming a participant, I'm excited to hear from you. Please do not hesitate to get in touch with me. My information is provided in the subtext note below. Take care.